Hey everyone, and welcome back to another episode of The Negotiation. This episode is part one of our discussion with Louis Udar, founder of Creative Capital. He is also an entrepreneur, business and investment coach, board member, and advisor to many startup companies. The Creative Capital China team has worked with European companies in China, as well as pushing little-known Chinese brands out into the Western markets. By establishing preeminent international brand awareness and strong brand relationships, Creative Capital is one of the only firms in China that focuses on widening awareness of Chinese companies beyond their home market. We kick things off by asking Louis to share his story about how he founded Secret Garden, which leads to a broader conversation discussing what Chinese culture means to him. We then discuss how he was able to sell Secret Garden, which led to the opportunity to build a men's fashion brand called 16N that was later invested by Sequoia Capital, all building the foundation for what is now Creative Capital. Along this conversational journey, we cover the importance of strong concepts, branding excellence within China, and just how important it is to always focus on a brand's image. Enjoy. When I realized it was, it was impossible to scale, I started to find a way to, to actually sell the company. And I was in discussion with a large e-commerce player in Europe who was interested to drive their foot into the Chinese market and looked at what I was doing. They were not interested in my retail part, but were interested in our know-how and, and operations. And they were also interested to put a fairly small amount of money to develop the e-commerce part in China. And, and obviously, as you know very well, China is not a place where you come with a small amount of money when you want to play on the e-commerce part. The benefit of having this discussion is things never being completely secretive. Some of my suppliers in Shanghai heard I was having some discussion and they came to me with an offer to purchase the, the business for me. Home to over 4 billion people, the Asia-Pacific region boasts one of the most powerful consumer markets on the planet. Not only is it home to half of the world's under 30 population, but it's also home to more than half the world's internet users. It's a market that no globally-minded organization should ignore. But entering markets like China, Japan, or Southeast Asia is no easy task. Just ask the likes of Microsoft, Google, Uber, and Facebook. However, times are changing, and with the right partners, doors are slowly opening as more and more companies find success growing their key markets in APAC. I myself spent eight years in China, mostly as a venture capitalist, helping early-stage tech companies grow in the Asia-Pacific market successfully. This show is dedicated to uncovering and examining successful Asia market entry and growth strategies by interviewing the experts who've done it before and truly understand what it takes to be successful in the region. My name is Todd Embley, and welcome to The Negotiation. Brought to you by WPIC Marketing and Technologies. Louis, welcome to the show. Thanks, Todd, for having me here. We'd love to place you on the map for the audience. So please tell us, where are you recording from today? It's actually a good good starting point. I'm right now in New York. And the reason I'm in New York is I've been uh, traveling around the world for the last seven months. So I left uh, Hong Kong uh, mid-December last year. Now, somebody who grew up in, in Europe, fair to say you're French? I'm Parisian. I'm, I'm French. So you grew up in Europe, grew up in Paris. Um, how did you end up in China? It's a good question. I mean, I, I would not lie to you to tell you uh, since since I was a young kid, I would uh, I was uh, uh, in love with uh, Chinese language. I, I ended up uh, studying um, in Europe and I did a first internship in Singapore. That was back in 98. And 
once in Singapore, I, it was really my first encounter with Asia and, and Singapore is an, was an amazing place, an amazing platform for this because it's a, a very, um, uh, I mean, everybody speaks English and it's very, uh, very convenient to, uh, uh, to commute and to travel around the place. And I started to uh, learn Chinese language uh, back in Singapore, start to travel uh, all the weekends where I had uh, some saving for my uh, small internship uh, salary in Asia. And I ended up um, during Christmas in Beijing, on a freezing cold in Beijing, uh, winter uh, 98. And, and I decided to, uh, uh, to do my second internship in, uh, uh, in China. And that's how I uh, really discovered China and, and I stayed, basically. So that was, uh, uh, at the beginning, random luck who, who led me to China through Singapore. We're going to jump in and out of your kind of your background, your your resume, your CV, so to speak. And I wanted to jump in first around a company called Secret Garden. Tell us what it is. What do they do? And what was your experience with them like? Sure. So Secret Garden... Um all these years in China, I was always an entrepreneur. So, so uh, pre-Secret Garden, I was a, a crude oil tanker broker. And uh, being in the industry, I was not really enjoying uh, myself. I mean, very interesting. I mean, uh, obviously, uh, energy and, and transport is, is a very, very big and, uh, industry and very much linked to the uh, development of China. But I'm a consumer guy, and I, and I was um, missing the connection with end consumer. So we were in 2006 uh, in Shanghai, and China was changing uh, both in terms of uh, the way consumers were consuming and also in the way brands were developing uh, in China. And I saw uh, a market opportunity in the retail of uh, flowers, uh, flower shops, basically. And I opened, still as a broker, one flower shop, which which was in Xintiandi, which is uh, uh, like across across the street from Xintiandi, which you probably know, like a, a high traffic, uh, sophisticated place in Shanghai. And somehow uh, it was um, it was a success. And I opened, a, quit my job as a broker, opened a second shop, five, and then uh, within a glimpse of a time, I had a small network of uh, stores, flower shops, with one. B2C business, um, most of my stores being uh, one shop next to Shintiandi, and then the other part of my stores being uh, in a place which have changed a lot, being in premium shopping mall in Shanghai. And back in that time, premium shopping mall in Shanghai were the Carrefour mall in the suburb of the city, which is really funny because obviously now Carrefour has left uh, uh, China and consumers went back to the city center. So, so it's, it's a very much um, uh, of a different different China. So I was opening my stores in um, uh, Carrefour, uh, Shanghai, to uh, uh, capture these um, upper middle class going into the malls, a little bit like in the in the U.S. culture, uh, enjoying the, the, the driving uh, to the shopping mall, and then also surfing on the um, wave of all these luxury brands, uh, splashing insane uh, events all around uh, Shanghai, inviting VVIPs, and with a very big need of flower decorations for their events. So I had two business, uh, all uh, within Secret Garden, was, was the B2C, and then the other one was the B2B. For anybody who has spent any time in China, there may be a good chance, as you've driven around the city, that you have seen just even the big floral arches. Um, I think for any, you know, store opening, any celebration, the floral component to the glitz and glam show that is these things, because they do put on the show, right? They really like to 
do it up really nice and um, a traditional dress and and very very ceremonial culture. So the floral component of that is is not nothing. It is actually quite big business, is it not? De- definitely. And then on the top of this, you've got also, of course, the uh, wedding business, uh, which is also something uh, very big. So in terms of the top line, it was an interesting business. In terms of the operation, it was a total nightmare uh, uh, <laughs> for, 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 me, for many different reasons. Um, first reason, and on things which I uh, didn't plan uh, enough carefully on my, on my business plan pre-store uh, opening, um, and here again, it's very interesting because we are talking China twen- uh, 2006 versus China today. So China 2006, my suppliers, they don't have a bank account. So I had to pay my suppliers every single day at five o'clock in the morning in cash. And they will not take credit uh, uh, from me. I mean, obviously now with uh, WeChat Pay, Alipay and so on, uh, it's a very, very uh, different game. But Back in that time, uh, flower shops, uh, sorry, uh, suppliers didn't have a, a, a bank account. Second issue um, was um, the uh, HR uh, issue. Um, to operate a flower shop, you need different qualities. Uh, you need people who are I mean, obviously honest because you are, if you are handling cash at the purchase early in the morning, you're also handling cash. Uh, in the store, uh, which of course makes it even harder when it's fresh product on fresh product that you make within the store. So you need them to be honest. You need them to be uh, talented designers. You need them to be uh, commercial, uh, and you need them to be uh, relatively uh, uh, smart. And um, uh, it's it's a lot of quality uh, within uh, one same person, which uh, overrides who do the job by themselves. So, so the HR was so, so, so painful. And my shops being all around the cities, in shopping malls, Carrefour, the flower market open at four o'clock in the morning. And you have to be there because you are paying in cash. So and it's, uh, uh, if it's not you, uh, uh, you are taking a big risk with a product which change price every day. And then my stores were open from eight o'clock in the morning to 11 o'clock in the evening, Monday to Sunday. So running around the city, collecting cash, making sure um, the, the, the store are well uh, approvisioned. And then on the top of this, you had the events. On the events, obviously, they are Saturday and Sunday. Um, it's not like FNB business when you can prepare in advance, froze the food. You need, suddenly, you, you sign a big event and you need two days in advance, uh, work out on a massive um, event and find the right product, um, the right supply chain of uh, flowers. So very, very, very difficult in terms of, uh, of operation. Very, very hard to scale. So I had my small network of uh, uh, 13 stores going around the cities while I used to be a lazy uh, crude oil tanker broker. Uh, so uh, um, extremely fun and meaningful experience, but on the day-to-day operation, a, a complete nightmare. For those who hear this story it's 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 almost fantastical and i know that even you and i would think from where we come from to to these type of operations um just the logistical the financial the wads of cash it's truly truly kind of wild wild east entrepreneurial hustling you just all hours everything is on the table you work in all night you just it's just it's chaotic 
uh, completely chaotic and you wonder how you ever survive or were ever able to build or grow something. I don't know how to convey that to the audience through this, but I can only try to put myself in their shoes and, and listen to you go, wow. And it's also a cash business in the sense that bottom line was profitable uh, per store, but we are also growing very quickly. So opening lots of stores and therefore you are, you are in a negative uh, CapEx business where you finance uh, the uh, deposit for the rent, then you pay uh, for the renovation, then uh, you pay for the stock, and then hopefully you start uh, to sell flour. So, which means by growing fast, I was also burning lots of cash with obviously uh, all the stress attached to it, which is on the 20th of every month, am I going to be able to pay my rents on the 25th, not my own rents, the the rents of my uh, stores and my uh, office on the 25th, am I going to be able to pay uh, for my um, employee salaries? On the 29th or 30th of every month, am I going to be able to pay my own uh, own rent? And, And somehow, by some sort of magic, every month, managing to do it, months and months after. Uh, well, um, and, and I'm not really sure how it is in, a, um, uh, in Canada. For, for instance, in France, it's fairly easy to get bank financing. As a small entrepreneur in China, I mean, you are definitely on your own. So, 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 you, so you need to find a way to make the business uh, continue to roll. That's another thing. I mean, getting the, the registration for the company, uh, getting the, the bank accounts, uh, it is in, in, in all ways so, so, so very different. Um, I wanted to ask you about what you learned about doing retail, but listening to you, uh, I, I almost think that the retail, and correct me if I'm wrong, was a small part of the business compared to the, the, the supplier distribution, logistics and, and, and events side, almost on the, on a B2B side probably quite a bit more. So I'm not even sure if asking you about what you learned about retail <laughs> can even compare to what you learned about the other aspects of the business. Yeah, it's, it's a good question. And, and I mean, definitely uh, the main um, uh, profit and uh, was coming from the B2B and the, and the events. However, the retail was uh, creating lots of traction in terms of uh, uh, marketing, brand image, um, and also uh, volume uh, plus... Um, Kind of weekly uh, weekly volume because obviously the uh, the event is on the w- weekend, but you still need to have uh, flowers every day. So so it was a very nice uh, combination of um, uh, uh, of the two business. For the past eleven years, been the uh, founder and uh, or the ex CEO of Creative Capital China, um, which is kind of China's first branding agency, really. Uh, And it was focused on helping Chinese brands uh, tell their stories. So let's dive into that. Um, Tell us a little bit from the the early days, from since 2011, what made you decide that you needed to create a company like this? Where was the inspiration from? The story of creative capital is very much, of course, linked to uh, uh, the story of Secret Garden. And I think it's also very much linked to the way China entrepreneurship has been developing. So, so being a very fluid uh, thing. So I had this beautiful little business of Secret Garden, which was very painful to operate, but, but still an interesting small business. When I realized it was, it was impossible to, to scale, I, I started to find a way to, um, uh, to actually sell the company. And I was in discussion with a um, large uh, e-commerce player in, um, uh, uh, in Europe uh, who was interested 
to um, try their uh, foot into the Chinese market and looked at what I was doing. They were not interested in my retail part, but were interested in our know-how and, and operations. Uh, they were also interested to put a fairly small amount of money um, to develop the e-commerce part in China. And, and obviously, as you know very well, uh, China uh, is not a place where you come with a small amount of money when you want to play um, uh, on the e-commerce part. Um, the benefit of having this discussion is things never being completely secretive. Uh, some of my uh, suppliers in Shanghai heard I was having some discussion and they came to me with an offer to uh, uh, to purchase the, the business for me. So that, that's how uh, I got rid of uh, Secret Garden. And then what happened before to go into uh, creative capital, a good friend of mine in uh, Kunshan who was uh, herself um, franchisee. So, so China retail business traditionally was made of... Uh, retailers, brands, China is a very big market, growing up their business through local franchisee. Because of course, if you are in North China, it's going to be first very, very far from South China, but it's also going to be different climate, different uh, different chain of shopping malls, different uh, type of consumers, different uh, um, uh, customer habits, and so on. So most of Chinese brands have been traditionally developed in China through franchisee. And this, this friend based in Kunshan was kind of the local super franchisee. So he had, she had around 150 stores in Kunshan of probably 20 different brands. And we were in 2009 or 10, and, and she wanted, like many other franchisee and brands, go up into a value chain and create her own brand. And, and she came to me and uh, telling me, I love what you did at Secret Garden in terms of creating a brand from scratch and managing to sign uh, good leads and having good uh, marketing and brandings thanks to your concept. So please do the same for me and create uh, a menswear brand. And I did that with her. So I was a small partner in the business and on, uh, we created a brand called uh, Shelly N, uh, 16N. Um, we did one shop, we did one fairly nice concept, one fashion show, and somehow, a little bit by magic, thanks to a very good concept and, and storytelling, we managed to raise the, through Bridge Loan money from Sequoia. Uh, which, which is obviously a, a very big uh, VC fund, I mean, uh, in the US, but also very active in, in China. And, and this created a kind of crazy snowball effect uh, in the sense that many people from the Chinese fashion ecosystem were all a little bit like my friend Eda, also trying to transform their uh, factory into uh, launching their own brand or having this kind of aging uh, retail concept. They came to me asking, could you do the same thing with what you did with uh, 16N? Because I also want to create a brand and five years from now, I want to IPO. And, and, and that's how Creative Capital actually uh, was born. So, so that was kind of a collateral, uh, not damage, but collateral uh, effect of creating this fashion brand uh, after the Secret Garden uh, effect. We speak to a lot of our guests about Western brands, going to China. However, you work with Chinese brands. So I guess maybe my first question is maybe what is that like, broadly speaking, but how would you compare that to working with, say, European brands? Yeah, that's a, that, that's a great question. And probably I should even explain you what we are doing in terms of branding and also why creative capital was relevant in China where, and where it would not have been relevant, for instance, in a, or less relevant in France or, or maybe in, a, in, the, in the US. Yeah, let's start there. Coca-Cola, LVMH, 
in Europe or in the US, they don't create brands. They, they buy brands. Um, um, and therefore, most of the branding agency in Europe or in the US are not really there to create brands. They are there to fine-tune an existing concept, which often is fairly good. I mean, if I work with Coca-Cola, I will not tell them to, to forget the red uh, and to talk about uh, enjoyment and happiness and so on. So, so there are strong brands which eventually will have a little bit of uh, fine-tuning. In China, back in that time, in the consumer uh, space, you had amazing entrepreneur, amazing products, amazing supply chain, amazing distribution, but few brands with a strong concept. So, so uh, if you remember your, your years in uh, Dalian or in uh, uh, Shanghai, uh, how many... Um, um, consumer Chinese brand, you could really remember standing for, 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 for their own concept. Uh, very, 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 very few. And, and uh, so this is what we are doing. So we would come on help to start from the storytelling of a concept, bring some, um, what I would call story feeling, uh, and then worked on all the different uh, brand assets. So the visual identity, packaging design, retail design, in a very, very 360, very, 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 quick uh, approach, something that a project like this, if it would have been done for uh, a big European brand, would have taken probably two years of work, three years of work, because first, the brand is very big, there's so many stakeholders, there's a very big in changing and risking uh, uh, to change the, the concept. Well, in China, uh, first, the, the, the uh, background uh, of the brand is not uh, as strong in terms of uh, concept, and the market is changing very quick, but if you try to be perfect, the market is already gone or there's already a competitors who have taken your sp uh, spot. So we were trying to be maybe not 100% perfect, but being like 85 or 90% there, and, but in a very, very, very quick period of time. So concept would have taken two years in Europe. We were delivering them in four to five months. The juxtaposition of working with European brands versus, versus the Chinese, can I tease out some other maybe interesting nuances to how those relationships, how, how you work with a, a Chinese brand versus a European? I think a big uh, difference is most of the mid-size to large Chinese clients that we had were most of them first-generation business uh, started by an entrepreneur who works day and night and is very, very strongly uh, uh, emotionally attached to what he's doing. Uh, um, and, and therefore, which also, if you've got the trust uh, on the reactivity, uh, can go very quickly. So in Europe, usually, as I was mentioning, usually you would have many different stakeholders. You would have a marketing director who is not the guy who has started the brand. You would have a brand GM who often you're also not the one who has started the brand. And therefore, the decision-making is much more is much slower and also much more complex. While uh, most, and, and, and to come back to this amazing Chinese entrepreneur I used to work with, lots of them actually were super hardworking uh, individual, not necessarily with a strong education background, but very, very, very intuitive. So very quickly by uh, working and discussing with them and presenting concept, um, they would intuitively decide which one would be the best uh, for their market and consumers. And also sometimes actually saving all the long market research that, that some uh, Western brands uh, would do. We've covered a lot about creativity and why it's important to be creative and be open to creativity. 
when entering China. And I, I think we push that narrative quite often to prepare them to be flexible, to be open. Now, when, you know, and especially when I'm trying to appeal to Chinese consumers specifically. So what do you believe creativity really means? Because I don't think we've actually explored what that creativity should mean. And so I'm curious from your perspective and, and what, what creativity might, might mean to you. And, and does it mean, do you believe it means something different in the context of China than it does to the West or, or to Europe? It's a good question on it. Uh, I mean, I, uh, I don't have the uh, perfect answer for this. I mean, um, uh, I mean, obviously I can, I, I can, Give you what 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 we hear fairly often about uh, China when it comes to creativity. That uh, in China, for instance, what we call a, a chef or a master is someone that will replicate to the perfection uh, what his master uh, used to do. And, and I guess that was probably somehow true uh, uh, in the past. I've I've seen so much creativity in China in kind of solving problems, uh, turning around uh, puzzles and, and, and solving them. Um, I think there's definitely a lot of creativity, so much creativity in China going on. I mean, I think it's a, that, that's really a, no, uh, a no-brainer answer to me. Um, and, and I think where uh, I've seen so many amazing Chinese entrepreneurs uh, and colleagues and, and people uh, around me is, is how to... Um, take an existing concept and make it better and, and, and quick. I mean, if we take the, the more simple example of, uh, of uh, in the tech product of WeChat, which is just a better product than WhatsApp, uh, plus uh, Facebook, uh, plus, um, uh, I don't even use it anymore, uh, PayPal and Twitter, and it's just better, so much better, uh, actually. Is uh, WeChat a copy of WhatsApp? Of course, it's not. I mean, uh, it's uh, it's uh, it's it, uh, but it's just putting different things together and make it incredibly intuitive and user friendly. Um, and, and I think this is something to me which which has been absolutely uh, uh, amazing to learn uh, from China and and from from Chinese. We've talked a lot about and, and by the way, oh, WeChat. If there's anything I miss. This is WeChat. I, I, I love WeChat as a, as a tech geek uh, kind of person. I, I'm such a big fan of WeChat. Uh, I miss it dearly. We've talked a lot about what Chinese brands um, do well and how they are very successful with consumers in their own market and what we can learn from that potentially and, and tease that out and go the other way across the other side of the ocean. We've also discussed the speed at which uh, China works. And I think, I think uh, regular listeners will understand at least that it's that it's a lot faster than they might think, and and then also how they they leverage customer data and put that yeah, back into the production cycles. Uh, those those iterative production cycles or creativity cycles potentially on how they're they're adapting and adopting and and pushing into the market. So to avoid going over some of what we usually end up talking about quite a bit. Is there any trends or tactics that you've seen emerging in the past couple of years that can really speak to what the Chinese brands are doing to succeed and, and maybe some sort of innovation that has come up uh, amidst uh, COVID and the lockdowns that has been kind of spurred forward because of that constraint? Something which was, I think, talked quite a lot uh, in the last uh, year and a half was 
what's something called the lazy economy. So the lazy economy is basically the economy of the last miles where you're going to have your food delivered on, on the, uh, bringing lots of conveniency to the world uh, of, the, of these users and consumers. I'm not really sure actually I like the word lazy economy because to me it's, this is actually not necessarily being lazy, just being, the, I would call even the, the smart economy. So uh, allowing these busy uh, white colors uh, in Shanghai or Beijing or Chengdu to optimize uh, their time so they can engage and go into other things, which could be uh, spending more time with families, spending more time with friends, spending more time uh, doing things that they, that they enjoy. So, so, so I think this lazy economy has been obviously booming. Though, uh, to me, it's more the, the smart, I would call it more the, the smart economy than the, the lazy economy. Um, another interesting trend, which have been, have been kind of a, a reaction to, to the different lockdown in China, is uh, all the um, outdoor next to the city uh, thing. So uh, glamping has been something which has been booming uh, in, in uh, uh, urban cities with a little bit of, uh, of uh, grass. Uh, another interesting sport, which I mean, nobody would have uh, talked about uh, two years ago and now has been super hot on all the uh, social network is a uh, uh, frisbee, uh, the rise of uh, Frisbee and, and many brands have been starting to do uh, collaboration and, and things with uh, uh, with, with uh, Frisbee, uh, which is I think something which been also uh, uh, linked to uh, younger consumers who wanted to reconnect uh, with their friends um, with a little bit of outdoor. Yeah, and you're, do they have the leagues like where they play ultimate Frisbee? And do the the teams? Yes. Yeah, they have that as well. Yes. That's interesting. That was definitely not, you know, when I've been gone now six years. So I, I didn't know that both glamping, which, and, and we see that all over the world, right? The Even Airbnb is rejigging their platform to focus on the, the unique experiences aspect. And this is where you start to see the yurts and the biodomes and all these interesting types of, of, of places. Um, it's interesting to hear. I think you're the first person to actually call those two things out as really really booming in China. So that's that's really great insight. Okay, I think we'll stop part one right there. Please join us next week for part two with Louis Udar. Thanks for listening. Growing a company is hard. Doing it in a foreign market? Exponentially so. The best piece of advice I can give you is not to do it alone. When you start looking at the Asia-Pacific region for further expansion possibilities, and I sincerely hope you do, make sure you choose the right partners to do it with. My good friends at WPIC Marketing and Technologies have almost 20 years of experience helping brands, just like yours, enter China, Japan, and Southeast Asia. I hope you enjoyed this episode of The Negotiation, and if you're interested in being a guest or want to connect with me or any of our team, please reach out to us at podcast at WPIC.co, and be sure to rate, comment, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.